Uh, Simon Wiesenthal is a uh, Holocaust uh, survivor who published a book called The Sunflower on the possibilities and limits of forgiveness. And if you've ever read this book, you'll know that Wiesenthal describes a really a, a surreal experience he had uh, in a concentration camp as a Jewish person towards the end of World War II, where he found himself face-to-face with a German SS officer who was mortally wounded and dying. But in the midst of his death throes, he starts detailing his crimes to Wiesenthal. And the most horrific of which, and they're all horrific, was the burning down of a building uh, that, were, that was full of Jewish people in it. And he and some other soldiers laughing as they shot the Jewish people that would either run from the burning building or try to lean their heads out the window to grab a breath. Horrific crimes. But at that dramatic moment in the confrontation, the dying man grabs Weisenthal by the shirt and begs him for forgiveness for what he's done here at the doorstep of his own death. So Weisenthal then poses to the reader at the end of that story, what should I have done? Well, the rest of the book, literally the last two-thirds of the book, are philosophers and and theologians and, and politicians and thinkers from all over the world trying to make sense of what you would say to someone who posed a question like that in a moment like that. But what interested me in sort of reading the rest of that book was how quickly the respondents who were answering Weisenthal's question immediately went to the question, how do I forgive? Where is God in those kinds of questions? In other words, it was almost like this instinctive question that it is almost impossible to talk about forgiveness without asking deep questions about who God is and how He deals with us. And when you wrap yourself in the vivid pain that people experience and that people commit against people, you start looking for ultimate answers to that pain that really only God can forgive. And so I want to look at a, at a story uh, uh, this morning from the Gospels, from Matthew chapter 18. If you brought a Bible, open to Matthew 18. Weisenthal, at the end of his book, and the end of the responses, basically concludes that if there is a God at all, he is disturbingly absent. How can Christians make head or tails of the difficulty of forgiveness, I believe, is at the essence of this parable that Jesus tells. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word from Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And I forgive him as many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife, and his children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. 
So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We say in this church that grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. Three simple points about the idea of forgiveness that comes from it to us from Matthew 18. The costliness, the reality, and the practice of forgiveness. Costliness, reality, and forgiveness. First of all, the costliness. I wonder when the last time was for you when you were put in a place where you were being asked to forgive someone of something. Uh, Miroslav Volf is a, is a, a, a Croatian-born philosopher, teacher in America, living in America, who makes a point that oftentimes as Westerners who have lived in very safe suburban lives, the idea of forgiveness can be thought of as a matter of course. Well, of course you forgive someone. Of course it's a necessity to forgive. But plant yourself maybe in a Middle Eastern context or a Croatian province province, or even a Chinese sweatshop, and it very well might be that you suddenly realize that the idea of forgiveness is a big problem. It's difficult. And I think it's exactly what prompts Peter's question in verse 21. Lord, how many times should should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And he throws out a number. I don't know, seven times? But of course, what happens is, the reason I think why Peter asked the question is because of what Jesus has just said. You see, in context, Jesus is talking about how to deal with conflicts in the church when matters of forgiveness come up. And Jesus says, look, if someone comes to you and repents, then you have, he says, won back your brother. And I'm sure that Peter's thinking to himself, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) What if he does it again? Well, and then he could do it again. Well, you know, what if he does it a third time? You know, Lord, how many times should I let that stuff go by? And Jesus' answer is sort of a Jewish way. Some of your translations will say 70 times 7. It's not that the list is a good bit longer. Jesus is in a very Jewish way saying that the obligation that the followers of me will have to forgive each other is unlimited. There will be no way to exhaust that reservoir when you get them. You are to offer them grace unlimited. infinitely in a way that doesn't stop. Now look, that's an unsettling claim. (laughs) No limits on forgiveness? How can Jesus even say that? Well, in order to explore that, you really kind of have to do the fun of the math of what's going on here. The fun of the math. My wife is a math teacher, so you have to include the fun of the math before that. It's a real hoot to do math in this one. This one's a good one. Because the servant owes 75 talents. A talent is, is, a, is a measure of weight, okay? We know this from, from history sources, that a talent is something like 75 pounds. 75 pounds, a talent is a lot. Well, this guy owes 10,000 talents, which means he owes about 750,000 pounds of something to this king. Now look, uh, again, it's fun to, Jesus, I think, is exaggerating the contrast here, so it's fun to like work out the numbers. Uh, 
It turns out that Friday, I looked this up yesterday, gold closed at about $1,190 an ounce. So if you actually do out the math of this, of what kind of debt this servant owed this king, it comes out to what? Something like $14.3 trillion was what this guy owed. Now look, um, I don't know what they, I don't know how this could have amassed. It probably was that the people whom Jesus was telling the story did the same thing you did, which is to snicker. Oh, 10,000 talents. Nobody could amass a debt like that. But that's kind of when you've got to realize people's jaws probably dropped open when he said that the master looked at him and forgave him the debt. Forgave him the debt. Look, the whole Roman Empire used to run on about a million dollars if you transfer it to our days. I mean, how in the world could someone ever amass that kind of debt? But I think what Jesus is trying to say before we ever talk about the question of forgiveness is he's trying to get into our minds the costliness of forgiveness. Forgiveness hurts. It hurts the person who's having to forgive. It is hard to do. It shows up in the face of true life-melting pain. And what Jesus is saying is, is trying to take your pain and translate it, as it were, to the Father's pain at your sin. I wonder how many of you remember reading Psalm 51, the great, the great psalm of David's confession before his sin with Bathsheba. And at one point, he says in the midst of it, against you and you only have I sinned. And you go back and read the history and be like, wait, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> um, how about Bathsheba, whom you seduced and brought into your harem? And, uh, oh, I don't know, how about uh, her husband that you had murdered? Um, and then how about the fact that you lied the whole... <laughs> I don't know, I can name a bunch of people that you sinned against. But what is David saying? He's saying, what I realize is, is that sin is not just the breaking of a rule, but rather it is the breaking of a heart that adores and loves his people. And you never really feel the full weight of what forgiveness is until you realize that all sin against God is personal. Well, I don't know why you take it so personally. He takes it personally. A personal offense to God. Jesus is saying that before you can reasonably grasp what I am asking you to do in forgiveness. Follow this. Before you can grasp what I am going to place upon you as the standard of forgiveness for my people when they gather, you have to realize what your sin looks like to me. You have to get a feel for a glimpse of what your offense to me, your maker, your redeemer, your lover, your friend, looks like because it is inconceivable to your finite mind. It's a triviality to make little of sin. And so the first question we wrestle with in forgiveness is seeing what God thinks about it. And it feels like $14.3 trillion that you owe. But secondly, that sort of prompts the question, does it not? Why is that helpful? I'm so glad I came to church this morning um, to find out just exactly what my sin was like. That feels like it makes my problem worse. But does it? The second point, though, is the reality of forgiveness. The reality of forgiveness looks at the reaction of the king. You see, at the sight of the man's begging, what does he do? He releases him from his debt. And at this point, you get a lot of people who really misunderstand what the meaning of this story is. First, the man shows that there's something deeply wrong with the exchange that happened between he and the king 
by the way he acted when he went to go see his servant, right? How is that possible that you could demand such a small debt after having been forgiven such a huge debt? Great question. But secondly, when the king was told about what happened, he drags the servant in. uh, And what most people look and say is, they're like, well, it looks like the king then took back his forgiveness. He took it back. And therefore people say, well, okay, this is the quid pro quo of being a Christian. As long as you offer forgiveness to others, God will forgive you. But the second that you do not, your forgiveness will be taken away and you have no security. Is that what the passage teaches? I say it does not teach that for a couple of reasons. First, the whole Bible contradicts it. There's nothing. The security of believers is a major theme in Scripture. John John 10 describes Jesus describing his sheep and saying, Look, I know who my sheep are. They're in my hands. No one can snatch them from my hand. But secondly, I think there's actually a textual problem with that explanation. And, And you can see it in the desperation of the ungrateful servant as he goes to collect his servant's debt. Do you notice that? You get a little detail that Matthew throws in there that says that he began to be desperate and to choke the man. Why all the choking? Why are you so anxious to get that money? What's what's, what's the franticness? Well, my homiletics professor in seminary once said, look, that the reason why the passage reads this way, and it's entirely possible that the servant is going to his servant to collect on the debt for what he owed the king. And it completely changes the texture of this. In other words, what he's doing is, by his reaction, is showing that there was a forgiveness that was offered to him. But by his reaction shows that he refused it. In other words, he's racing to his own service to be like, ah, do you know the debt that I owe this king? Do you understand how badly I've offended him? You've got to get, get pay back what you owe me. No wonder he's so desperate. And he collects on the debt to give back to someone who had, had, had offered him forgiveness. Look, th- this is a huge linchpin in understanding the psychology of forgiveness. And, and I, I love this illustration. Uh, we jumped into this years ago, which I'm sure you all remember. Um, imagine after church this morning, someone needs to borrow some money for you. Maybe to get their car out of towing. Um, <laughs> hypothetically speaking. And they need, they need to borrow 40 bucks from you. Can I borrow some money? I don't have any cash on me. The guy only takes cash. Can you help me? You give him the money and you go on. Well, tomorrow morning you wake up to a phone call informing you that you have won like a huge settlement in a, from a distant relative who has left you an inconceivable amount of money. Millions and millions of dollars are in store for you because of this passing of this near and close relative who took joy in you. Well, in the midst tomorrow morning of your dancing around and celebrating your great fortune, the phone rings. And it's the person from yesterday who said, man, I'm so sorry. I'm coming right over with your money like right away. What would you say to that person on the phone? Yeah, you know, could you please? I mean, like I did offer it to you. And if you were grateful, you would look at me like, keep your money. Keep your measly $40 because that is tiny. That's a speck compared to what I just won. You see, in the psychology of forgiveness, you find that the massive fortune has the ability to almost demote the loss of the 40 bucks that you owed. And that's the point. 
Jesus is saying, my forgiveness is so vast and so rich and so thoroughgoing that it will then demote in your life all of those other petty defenses, petty offenses that have been committed against you. Or at least things that are petty in the view of how great it was. How can you demote that pain? How can I look and say, but Les, you don't understand. It feels so large inside of me. How can that happen? Well, it's got to happen from something else that you find beautiful. Now, I was one of those sort of people in high school and college who just, I didn't date very well. I don't know if this is being recorded, but if there's someone out there who was unfortunate enough to be inflicted upon my dating life, I apologize, as I probably should have. But I tell you what, there were, there were, there were a couple of relationships that were just very difficult. And they still hang in the memory. Yes, even in your late 40s, that stuff doesn't go away. But there were a couple of relationships that I look back and just had a, a, a weight of guilt hanging over me. To where you couldn't even let your mind kind of drift over into those relationships without feeling just this wave of embarrassment. Do you want to know when those things kind of started to dissipate? It was when I met Ginger Hubbard. And suddenly, there was something that was so overwhelming and so beautiful about my care and love for her that it suddenly took the anxiety and the pain from those other experiences and it began to demote it. It began to push it further down. All of the other allegiances were, were sort of set aside. There was someone else who reigned in my heart at that moment. Don't you see the powerful nature of a new affection that when it lands in the heart, it changes the way that you approach everything? And if right now you're thinking to yourself, how could something possibly be that great to demote the kind of hurt I feel from what I've gotten in my loved ones? Man, that's a great question. But I would simply offer you this thought. Is it not possible that Jesus asks his followers to do something as strident as forgive people in an unlimited fashion unless he himself is willing to offer it to you in return? This is the beauty here. Repentance will always be met with acceptance. Why? Because Jesus bore our lack of forgiveness on the cross. Even our unwillingness to forgive, He bears even that offense that He can forgive as long as there's repentance. But without owning the offense, there's no way to take that pain. Without taking it to the cross, the pain that's been inflicted on me, you know what's going to happen? It's going to go out to others. And in the end, we become embittered or we become hardened by it. And our lives become this experience of exacting the payment from other people. And you become like what Paul describes in Galatians chapter 5, where he talks about the new freedom that we have in Christ. And if you don't g- grasp and own that freedom, you're going to continue to devour each other. <laughs> That's a vivid way to put it. You've been devouring each other. It's like you're consuming one another. You're robbing each other of this. But my grace is bigger than that. It's it's more giant than that. It's richer than that. Don't heap more guilt on yourself. Get curious. And go rework the calculus of his forgiveness. It's not imaginary nor elusive. Thirdly and finally, then the practice of forgiveness. Because I can see the looks on your face. You're being like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) I, I have a few questions about this. Because Les, I've had a terrible month. You don't know what's been done to me. Lest I have a memory from my childhood that still hangs in my memory. What does this mean? What does forgiveness look like? Well, before I 
launch into that, can I at least offer a couple of thoughts of what forgiveness is not? First of all, forgiveness is not amnesia. For many of you, the fact that the memory of the offense still reigns in your mind somehow feels to you like a lack of forgiveness. I would argue that it's not. Forgiveness is not a wiping of the memory. They're like, what terrible thing that you did? What abuse as a child? I don't even remember it. That's called being psychotic. (laughs) Secondly, forgiveness is not trusting someone right away. Forgiveness, it it does not mean that if someone has been embezzling from my company and they come back to me and ask for forgiveness for it, that it is a lack of forgiveness from me to say, yes, but you have some time to learn good patterns of what it means to work in this environment. And so, no, it doesn't mean that you get your job back immediately. Forgiveness is not an ignorance of sinful patterns in someone else. Families are oftentimes crippled with this, where an addict will come up and claim to want forgiveness and You're not forgiving me. You're supposed to be a Christian. You're supposed to forgive me and let me back. But forgiveness doesn't ignore those kind of sinful patterns for someone to plead for forgiveness so that they won't have to go back into rehab. No, this is not Christian forgiveness. I will acknowledge the fact that one of the reasons why God gave his people um, godly elders and overseers is because there needs to be someone to talk to about these kinds of issues. That oftentimes, these things are complicated. They are difficult to manage. (laughs) And so the elders at this church will deal with all of your problems after the service is over. (laughs) You're welcome, elders. (laughs) So what is Christian forgiveness? I think it's this. I think in the end what Christian forgiveness is, is it is an absorbing of the debt. Christian forgiveness is when I make a determination that I am not going to take the pain that was inflicted against me and actively turn on it and take stabs at someone else. I'm not going to take advantage of that ability to sort of use the the cutting word. I'm going to do my best to move away from from, from the dirty look from across the room. That I'm going to do my best to, to stay away from those opportunistic gossip moments where I can sort of take you down a couple of levels, that I determined to act as if the buck stops with me. It's the only way in which the cycle of abuse that inevitably follows people sinning against each other stops. And the crazy thing is, is I don't think I'm just talking about your relationships. Last week when we got a chance to hear from Jamar Tisby about race relations in our state made me think about this is that even on a societal level, unless there are implanted within that society individuals who have an instinct to know how and have places that they can dig into inside of their souls with resources to find their way to forgiveness, then you really do have an entire culture of people who live on the basis of consuming one another. And dialogue in that context just polarizes. It's like the pendulum swings back and forth with one person just seeing who can grasp at the most power. Feels like our national moment. Forgiveness, though. God says, look, I have a program that I've initiated into the world, and my program is to fix the universe. 
And that fixing is going to be called the kingdom. And you'll know when the kingdom comes because my ambassadors go out and inexplicably, they will not take debt and do what it feels like they want to do with debt, which is to have it hit them and be like, give me somebody else to take this out on. Pay back what you owe me. Instead, my people will be so equipped with a richness of resource inside themselves that regardless of how they act, when that debt strikes them, they will absorb it. And when they absorb it, they will neutralize it. And when they neutralize it, they'll determine not to inflict it on someone else. And through it all, I'll give space for my people to heal. To heal. Forgiveness is about healing. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not even saying that right now you can work out all the like, ah, oh. <laughs> it occurred to me while doing this. Some of you may have, I'm having trouble forgiving you, preacher boy. It may be the case. I don't know. But this is the point. Somewhere in the heart of Jesus' forgiveness of us is our path of holiness that creates the change that God wants to bring throughout the universe. We quoted in Sunday school this morning from Horatius Bonner. I'll finish with Horatius Bonner. Always a good idea. Forgiveness is the mainspring of holiness. Love as a motive is far stronger than law, far more influential than fear of wrath or peril of, of hell. Terror may make a man crouch like a slave and obey a hard master, lest a worse thing come upon him. But only a sense of forgiving love can bring either heart or conscience into that state in which obedience is either pleasant to the soul or acceptable to God. My friends, is it possible that one of the reasons why that forgiveness issue sticks in the crawl is because you've not bathed in the sun of his forgiveness of you. And if that makes you curious, you might be believing. Let's pray. Then Lord Jesus, help us to believe. We believe. Help our unbelief. We long to be not just in fellowship with you, but in fellowship with each other. We long for our city not to crumble underneath the, the backbiting that happens. We long for our state not to waste away with our citizens hurling abuse from each side and the other. We long for our nation to be healed of the constant attacks and the perpetual opportunity we have in social media to express it. We long for these things. But if Matthew 18, Father, if, Lord Jesus, if this parable that you told is true, it will begin with us digging deeper wells inside of our heart where we can well up your forgiveness. So we ask that this morning would be an occasion of you doing just such a thing, that we might walk out awash, that we might walk out repentant, therefore we might walk out holy. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name.